You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO, and I'm Claire McKenna. Hello and welcome. Thanks for listening. This is For the Record, a registrar's podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and I'm super excited about today's episode because we're going to hear from an incredibly smart attorney who graduated from a top 25 law school, graded onto the law review there, is a published author, and who specializes in privacy law. She's going to talk about the overarching principles of privacy and the way that we need to approach our treatment of personally identifiable information. Oh, and she also happens to be my wife. Hi, Claire. Hi. Yes, nepotism is alive and well in your podcast. (laughs) This is going to be a little glimpse into the kinds of nerdy conversations we have around the house on a pretty regular basis. So, Claire, thank you for taking the time to share some thoughts with us on the podcast today. And to kick things off, other than FERPA, what laws are we talking about? And what are these principles of privacy encoded in those laws? Well, in the United States, we, at the federal level, do not have an overarching data protection privacy law that applies across the board. What we have is a sector-specific legal framework. So, of course, this audience is familiar with FERPA, which is applicable. Definitely. Yeah, I hope so. It's applicable to educational institutions. But there's also privacy laws that apply specifically to federal government agencies, to um, healthcare institutions, of course, and then financial institutions. So some of those are going to apply you know, to registrars, depending on how your school is organized, and some of them won't. Maybe you only have to be concerned about FERPA. And of course, there are there are maybe state and local laws that apply that you need to be aware of and cognizant of. But I think that the law is only, I mean, the law is helpful. We need to comply with the law. I'm required to say <laughs> right. that as, as a an, lawyer. As my in-house counsel, you are correct. Right. But the, but the law is only part of the consideration. It's it's sort of, I think, in the middle of the analysis as I like to think about it. And so, you know, I think it's helpful to f- kind of understand how we got here. Where did these laws come from? And generally, we think that these laws were first, or this, the framework that has informed these laws were f- first came about in 1973. And it, they were the result of an advisory committee of the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And so the advisory committee was tasked with thinking about um, how to deal with the risks that were presented to information from automated data systems, which I think is kind of quaint now that, you know, 40 years later to think about automated data systems and that they had an advisory committee think about it. And IBM punch cards. Right, exactly. But... You know, the work that they did was critical and has been critical in the development of the law and the thinking in this area. So this advisory committee published this report that articulated what is referred to as the Fair Information Practice Principles, the FIPS. And, you know, the... Wait, are those the people who sing behind Gladys? Yeah, right. No, I think those are the pips. Oh, so close. But maybe we could think of, like, some kind... Maybe we could start a band that's, like... Furpa and the Fips. Furpa and the Fips, or, yeah, McKenna and the Fips. I don't know. Right think on. about it. Um, so there... The Fips are... Some say five principles. Some say seven. They're, sometimes they're combined. They're presented in a variety of ways. It doesn't really matter, right? It, what matters is... 
the an, the analytical framework that they provide. So pe- privacy geeks at home, don't write Doug a letter <laughs> and say no, there are seven FIPS or you know or there there's no you know it doesn't matter. <laughs> Oh, and um, just to interject here, for the record, for the record, we've been joined by our daughter, Ella, (laughs) who is sitting and listening to this conversation as well. Ella, do you want to say hi? Nah. Nah? Okay. Maybe if you have anything to add related to the FIPS, you can chime in. (laughs) That's appropriate. Okay, so, and I'm also not going to talk about them in the order. If you Google what the FIPS are, you know, you're going to see them presented in a different order. Um, And I'm doing that on purpose. It's not, I know what the order is, but that's okay. (laughs) All right, so the analytical framework that was articulated by this advisory committee is really the ways, the, the ideal ways for how to govern your data. And I know that you've talked in other podcast about data governance. So some of this is you're going to hear repeated because this is the framework. Yeah, but that's good because it's reinforcing and it validates that I'm not making those things up when I talk about data governance and that they're actually grounded in some or codified in some laws. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I guess too, you know, in in the podcast that, that we're talking about, you refer to them, I think, as data... Um, governance, data, data governance, stewardship, data, stewardship um, data quality management. Data, exactly. And, and, you know, we're in my world, we talk about them as the FIP. So, but there's a lot of ways to name these, but again, they, they're all the same things and they're heart of hearts and they all basically come from the same place. And I guess I would also point out that these principles have also been adopted in the EU and other countries. So these are, in a sense, the universally accepted principles for how to do or how to think about data governance. Okay, so with much ado, now here's the principles. Okay, so when you have a data set, a lot of times when, when I'm dealing with a data set, the people that I'm talking to say to me, well, there's no PII in this data set. There's no PII in this data set. That's so we don't need to worry about it. personally identifiable information. Yeah, exactly. And personally identifiable information is information that alone or combined with other information can be used to identify or trace a particular individual. So it is not uncommon for me to be talking with someone, counseling them about a data set that includes someone's name. And someone says to me, Oh, there's no PII, so we don't need to worry about the data governance principles. And that's really, that's cutting to the end of our analysis. And so that is why I think it is important to, you know, be principled and be uh, disciplined in going through these and not to, you know, bring to it cutting to the end. And what people are doing there is saying there's no private data, there's no personal data, there's no data that, that, um, requires extra protections because people's names are not private. But yeah, in fact, under FERPA, it can be directory information. Precisely. Just tying this back to the registrars in particular, because it's about me. Well, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. And so, right. So in your, in, in exactly right. In your construct, people might say, oh, name and address. They, they think to themselves because they have the FERPA expertise. It's not private data. I don't need to worry about controls for this data. But that is later in the analysis because in fact directory student directory data is governed by the FERPA the FERPA tells you 
what you can do with it and how you need to manage it. So it answers some of the questions that are presented by the analytical framework. And you know, I, I remind the folks that I deal with that name is in fact PII because it can be used to distinguish or trace an individual. When I have Doug McKenna, I mean, I'm gonna come up with a couple people as it turns out there, but I can combine that with another piece of data like your home address your social security number, your birthday, and I'm going to be able to know exactly who you are. So name is PII. So you need to go through the analysis. Okay, now I promise I'm going to tell you what they are now. <laughs> I promise. Okay, so the FIPS. One of the um, principles of the FIPS is about access. And so access is about when you're collecting data about an individual, that person should be able to access the data set. They should know what you have about them. And that applies across the board. It doesn't really matter if the data is sensitive or not, or personal or not, in your view, in your subjective view. If you have a data set about a person, they should be able to know what's there. And they sh there should be a process, or consider whether there should be a process for them to be able to figure out what you have about them. So that's access. The next principle is use limitation. This one I think is pretty critical. This is about how you're gonna use the data and being clear about how you're gonna use it and only using it for the purpose for which you're collecting it. Right now we are like inundated with data sets and we know that data sets have value. And so it is not uncommon, I think, for folks to think, what, do we, what can we get? Let's suck it up, let's, let's take it. Because we might be able to use it. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be a use for it. Right. Um, and, you know, there are other considerations embodied in the FIPS that kind of would caution against that. And so this good practice principle is just really about knowing why you want to collect the data and using it for that purpose and, and, and maybe some related purposes that are sort of incidentally related um, or like sort of, you know, if you, if you collect data for a business process like registration, mm -hmm. There might be um, things that are not directly related to registration, but that are, that are supportive of the registration process that would be consistent even with a restrictive use limitation principle that you put in place. So use limitation, that's the second one. Redress, folks need to be able to correct wrong information that is about them in their data set. Yep. Um, and they also need to ideally be able to remove information that is wrong or um, perhaps that if there is um, an administrative process that results in um, some improper action that is later corrected, you know, have that expunged from the record. That would mm -hmm. be um, an action that you could take consistent with this idea of redress. Um, those are just examples. Yeah. And um, so far, all of these align with FERPA um, protections for the student. The student has a right to review what we have. Um, the student can tell the university or the institution what they can and cannot release or specifically who they can release uh, certain information to. And then they have the right to identify errors and bring those to the attention. And at the the time when this law was created, when FERPA was created, um, a lot of the record keeping was done 
manually. And so people would literally transcribe from one list of paper to another official record, um, and they would write, physically write, a grade, for example. And so the um, Scrivener's Error exception exists. And so that... Um, exception is fewer and far between, far, far farther between. <laughs> um, although we do have examples where faculty will skip an entry and then enter all of the rest of the grades off one, and so everybody, all of those students, get the student above them on the roster's grade. Mm-hmm. But those examples are, um, again, I think fewer and farther between. Well, and I mean that I'm so glad you said that. That's no mistake, of course, because the the fair information practice principles came about. uh, I'll just say it again as a result of an advisory committee for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. There is, and that was in 1973, and then the FERPA was enacted in 1974, along with the Privacy Act of 1974. There was a lot going on in the country at the time, um, and a lot of concern about data, not just from automated systems, but as you pointed out, the predominant filing system at the time was a manila envelope in a metal file cabinet, and and so that is no accident that that's where, and you're right, um, at least in, in the legal construct, that redress is really about correcting those Scrivener's errors. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be a way to challenge the substantive decision. So it wouldn't be a way for the student to say, I shouldn't have gotten an A in that, or a B in that class. I should have gotten an A. Right. No one ever says I shouldn't have gotten no, an A. No, I know. <laughs> 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 right, that's not a thing. Or that, or that person has yeah. maybe some other yeah. things going on. Before but, you jump back in, yes. I also want to... Um, comment on something that we chatted about before where attorneys say the FERPA mm-hmm. and registrars just say FERPA. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what you were, you were talking about um, data and data is an R, not an is. And so right. I think if you think about the law in the sentence, um, it right. should have a the there <laughs> if you weren't, you know, dropping it down to an acronym, but it really also depends on where it appears in the sentence. So... <laughs> Um, say it however you want, right. but I say the the FERPA the yeah, but that's okay. So um, access, use, limitation, redress. We've talked about those. The next one is integrity. This one's real important, I think, probably f- for any data steward. Your data has to be good data. It has to be reliable. Word. And you need you need to think about how to do that um, and how to give some assurance to both the person that you, the data provider that you know you care about making sure that the data has integrity and also mm-hmm. your data consumers right. super important and in fact i've gone so far as to say that we have a fiduciary responsibility to the student and to the alums whose data we steward yeah well you would think so i, I like that normative kind of hook on there i i personally agree for sure um and then of course, next uh, hot topic of the day is uh, the need for confidentiality and to have safeguards for the data. And, you know, this is really, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but this is really where kind of the nature of the data comes into play. So mm-hmm. name might not be sensitive, depending on the context. If it's directory information, you know, that context, not, very, not super sensitive. And so then that 
helps determine the kinds of controls that you need for the data. Maybe you do not need, you know, multi-layer authentication and uh, a lot of policy-based controls to ensure that there's no unauthorized access or maybe maybe you can give that information out freely so you don't need to worry about use limitation safeguards or enforcement of use limitation safeguards as much for that data set. But that's really kind of where you see this is almost the last of the FIPS that I'm talking about and this is where we're finally talking about the nature of the data and is it for instance, student data, or is right. it PII data? Or is it sensitive PII data? It's not, that's part, just kind of the end of the conversation when you're trying to figure out what of a panoply of controls you should apply to the, to the data to ensure the confidentiality and safeguards. And, and of course, too, I would say that this, inf this one, too, kind of circles back to some of the other analytical frameworks. These things hang together yep. because conf confidentiality and safeguards will help ensure the integrity of the data because it will help in protect against, you know, unauthorized access and potentially, you know, adulteration of the data and as it's being used. And then, you know, it also helps, you know, enforce the, any use limitations that you have applied to the data. You know, it really helps kind of... Um, give some teeth to those policy controls that you assigned. Right and, and then the last one that I was going to, that I'm going to mention of the FIPS um, is notice. And this one is the one that you always see first, because this is really kind of the banner item of um, privacy law. We're all familiar with privacy notices. They're everywhere. Every, virtually every business has a privacy notice. And especially since the GDPR was implemented in May of 2018 you saw like every major anybody reissue and revise their privacy statement so that sure. to incorporate those principles within the gdpr and to become compliant with gdpr um, we'll talk about gdpr in a totally different episode yeah i will not participate in that one <laughs> <laughs> i wish i didn't have yeah. to participate in that one <laughs> right um and i would say too this is again this is just me you know you can write angry letters, but I will acknowledge that reasonable people may disagree. But I think notice is probably the most controversial of these because there huh. is a lot of questions about whether notice is really meaningful mm -hmm. in kind of supporting all of these because privacy notices are so easily changed. Do people read them? Are they accessible? Are they meaningful? Right. The biggest lie told on the Internet is I have read the terms and conditions. Well, right, 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 exactly. But putting that aside, no, I, notice obviously is, an, I guess obvious to me, I should say, is an important part of the principles because notice is how you um, tell the public, both your consumers and the people who are giving you the data and the world basically about what, how they can get access to their data how you're going to use it, mm -hmm. how you're not going to use it, what redress do they get, how are you going to make sure that the data integ yeah, has integrity. It's basically the, the policy statement encompassing all of the other points or notifying, right. I guess because it's a notice, right. but notifying individuals about what those other FIPS are with that particular whatever it is they're collecting. That's exactly right. And, then, and, so, and the construct is a bit like, well, you've read the privacy notice. You know what we're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. You've given us the data anyway. I think this is where the controversy really comes in. You've given us it anyway. So you consent. You know, it's almost right. like you have a contract for the exchange of data. 
Um, and so, and, and institutions are required to send out the FERPA notice annually at a minimum. Um, we try to send it every semester because we have people who start on off cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is an annual notice that is required to tell students all of those things. Right, exactly. And so, and then folks who might be surprised or who may have been surprised when I said, you know, we have a sector based privacy law and it really, there's only really four f- sectors in the federal government that have privacy laws mm-hmm. or from a, f- a federal law standpoint that have privacy laws who may have been surprised by that because you hear all the time about, you know, FTC actions against companies for violating privacy and where does that come from? It really comes from the notice and from the idea that if a company says, I'm going to use data in a particular way or manage it in a particular way, and they don't do that, that's considered an unfair trade practice, which then is enforceable. So, so that notice that you provide is important, or that companies might provide or other entities might provide is important because it really, in my mind, because I'm a, as a lawyer, I think it creates a mini sort of rule of law for that data set that is enforceable either through the FERPA or through, you know, FTC action or, you know, a variety of other places. So, so these principles are embodied in the law, and they're also reflected in sort of how we think about privacy in the law. And so privacy law is really thought to come from this treatise that is very old now that was... Um, a Harvard Law Review article written by Justices Brandeis and Warren called The Right to Privacy. And, you you know, that's sort of a product of its time because the justice was concerned about photographers hiding in bushes and taking pictures, I think, of his daughter's wedding. I think that's the story behind that one. And so he was really concerned about what technology, which was at that time these cameras that could take pictures from far away without you knowing, what technology was doing to privacy rights. Um, And so that article really conceptually thought about privacy in a couple of ways. Of course, like the predominant way that it was talked about there was the right to leave me alone. Hey, I'm at my wedding. Don't take pictures of me without me knowing. Leave me alone. And that that applies to government, of course, and that's embodied in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which is like, you know, that you need a warrant, no unreasonable right. no searches search and seizures without a warrant, exactly. Crushed it. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, but there's also, importantly, this notion that privacy is about the right to control how information about you is used and disseminated. So it's one thing for me to say, okay, university, okay, company, you can have my data because I want to play this app or you can have my data because I want to buy tickets to a concert. But it's another thing for you as the company or the university to then take that data and use it in all sorts of ways that I never could have even imagined. But that's really, again, back to the FIPS where the notice comes in. And so I think, you know, I think it's interesting to connect all these dots because I think it's important to understand all of these theoretical principles upon which the FIPS and then the FERPA and the other laws were based because I think it helps inform the analysis. And, you know, this analysis transcends just whatever the law requires you to do, Mm -hmm. in my mind. Agreed. Anytime you're thinking about a data set or somebody wants you to collect data or give them data, 
I think that the inclination is to say, well, that's not student data, and you're just cutting to the end, or it is student data, so I can only do this way. But I would strongly urge folks to apply the FIPS to any piece of data that they get or any data set that is, is being contemplated. And you know, you might think, why, why do this? If the law doesn't require me to do this, why do it? And I think, I think there are two reasons, really. And I know that you think that you have a fiduciary duty, and I agree. You have a fiduciary duty it is key to establish trust. Mm -hmm. And trust isn't, I don't mean trust like as a matter of faith, right? You don't just close your eyes and say, trust me, give me the data. Trust is important because it will help the people who you want to get data from understand how you're going to use the data and how you're going to protect the data, and it will help them want to give you the data <laughs> that, right. you, that you want. <laughs> and it will not, but not only that, because that's like sort of funny. You laugh. How many options do we really have to control the data? It's sort of an all-or-nothing proposition as right. an individual person. And so, but it will improve the quality of the data when you have trust because people will be more willing to give you good data. Good data. Right. right. You know, it's like, please enter your name for access to this app, Mickey Mouse, you know, but yeah. if they know what you're going to do, they'll give you their real name. That's just a simple example. And not only that, but it's going to have your data consumers trust you. They're going to know that it's good data. It's not. You know, uh, just to use that example again, it's not going to be 76 Mickey Mouses. It's, you're going to have some confidence that these are real people with, and they've given you real data. And that not only will build trust, but it will increase the usefulness of the data. It will help people be able to think about how to use the data. It will make it better data. It will, it will improve your data products. And then you can see that you're off to the races there. So... I kind of already said that, but, you know, the law can answer some of these questions as you're going through the analysis. You, you know, if when you're trying to think about redress, what redress do I need? If, if it's student data, FERPA tells you. FERPA tells you exactly what the redress is that you need to do. So it, will, it answers some of the questions. But if it's not student data, you need to think about, you know, redress and how you want to do that. And so I think... You know, I just would say again, I think it's important to, you know, have the discipline and go through the analysis each time and have a clear understanding of how you want to use the data. And part of that, too, I had kind of alluded is that there's a cost. When you just decide you're going to suck up data, there is a cost. There's both real costs in terms of maintaining the data and securing the data. And there's also the theoretical costs of what steps will you need to take if this data is accessed without authorization, if there is a breach right. of some kind. And th that stuff needs to be accounted for, and you need to really, or I, I think folks really need to do a cost-benefit analysis when they're thinking about what data they want and how they want to use it to make sure that it's, you know, makes sense for the business process in, in the sense that they want to, take on the cost. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, this is where um, institutions' records retentions policies come into play, where if you have a records retention policy, if you don't have a records retention policy, I strongly encourage you to find out 
who at your institution needs to be involved in the creation of a records retention policy for the institution. But then you have to actually follow the records retention policy, including the destruction of records as they expire. Uh, And that is both to limit the exposure of what data may be breached. Um, It also limits the exposure to the university if they're ever sued. If you have the data, that's discoverable. Um, That's not the best approach to why you should do that, but it is one of those valid reasons for following the records retention schedule. Um, But it also is a protection for the individual whose data you're stewarding. And so if you don't have that data, it can't be stolen. It can't be used inappropriately. Um, And that's another element in building that trust relationship with the individual who's providing those data. And a lot of registrar records are permanent records. Mm-hmm. Um, so grades, obviously, we, we keep those forever, ever. Um, <laughs> but there are many other types of records at the institution um, that should fall under the records retention policy. And then, as you said, like, part of protecting the data is getting rid of data that you shouldn't have or not collecting data that you don't need, even from the beginning. So. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up records retention because that is such a key component of this and it does inform or it does serve many of the FIPS and Mm -hmm. you know it's important one of the I think great things about today and challenges is that it's cheap to keep data and folks think not only do I want all of the data give me all of the data but I also want to keep it forever because you never know you just don't know you don't know and but a record oh, re- we know <laughs> but a record retention policy that is enforced that's super important yep. do followed follow it is a really great control because it tells folks how long you're going to keep the data it makes sure that your data is good data because it's somewhat timely it's not you know so old that it's written on stone tablets And it helps protect the data because if you don't have it, it cannot be stolen. It cannot be adulterated. It cannot be used in ways that are adverse to the individual or and the notice. Um, So record retention policies are really key and just as important as a record retention policy is to actually follow it and destroy the records at the time. And, you know, there are no wheels that need to be created here with with the FIBS. You know, there are sort of, I think, established controls that you can apply to the data sets, to data sets depending on the sensitivity of the data that that satisfy each of these analytical frameworks. So if you're if you're in your office and you're thinking, gosh, this is a weird data set. It's not student data. I don't know how to do redress or I don't know how to ensure integrity. There are other people who've already thought of this and who you can reach out to in your community of registrars and say, I have this kind of data. What we, what's a good redress? And, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Right control that you put in place for a data set and you know it's it's all a cost benefit analysis you're you're doing an assessment of the sensitivity of the data and how much is it going to cost both in terms of like a programmatic cost not just a financial cost but a programmatic cost and a financial cost to apply that control and so you're you know you're selecting really from a catalog of controls based on what your data set is to address these 
FIPS, essentially. Yep. So. Cool. Yeah. Anything else? Any closing thoughts? Closing thoughts. Um, uh, no. <laughs> no, I think I would just, you know, sum up to say that, um, you know, the, I think that it's fun to think about the history of the FIPS and how we got here. And I think, to me, it helps it all come together. It, you kind of have an aha moment when you think about how what these laws are about yep. you know and you sh i would caution people to not kind of come at this consideration in a super technical way and just think like well let me go to the ferpa of course you need to know the law of course you need to know the law but you know there is a a broader way to think about this yep. um and it's always the same and it the more that you talk about data in the podcast by the like seventh one people are gonna be like i get it notice access use limitations you know and you're gonna talk <laughs> about them in other ways but i think that that's really important to think about it in every way and don't just kind of cut to the chase about is it student data or not because it's 2018 technology is going crazy it's going to continue to do that and the laws that were enacted in 1974 are going to get harder to apply because... Wait, what year is it? I, oh, 2019. Thank you. <laughs> but we just got to 2019. Yeah, it's just a minute. So it's 2019, yeah. and, but it's going to be harder to think about this because those laws, as we said, were enacted at a time of paper files, and technology is pushing the envelope here, and it's going to require, I think, all of us to kind of lean back on the FIPS a little bit harder than we have been to, to understand how we deal with data because those right. questions are going to get harder to answer because the law wasn't written for the way that we do business today. Correct. So Great. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts Thank you. on these principles of privacy. Uh, one disclaimer, this is not legal advice. No, <laughs> definitely not. This is just, if you, you have, know, us talking at the table. Right. If you have questions, <laughs> uh, please engage your local counsel. Uh, at your institutions and I look forward to hearing from you the contact information is registrarpodcast at gmail.com and I appreciate you listening and looking forward to future episodes like this one subscribe to the podcast share it with your friends and we will talk to you next time on For the Record